0: I've spoken to fishermen that say, no, it's really good, you've got to dredge the seabed. It's, it's like plowing a field. And I say to them, but you don't plow your field three times a week, you know, You wouldn't. nothing would grow. But you can still, you can have a mindset of being a steward and being responsible and wanting to leave something, or you can have a smash and grab attitude and be a pirate. And I wouldn't break it down just to like the kind of gear or the species you're catching. I think as with anything, you can basically be a bastard about it or not.
1: Dave here. Um, Yes, welcome to Sustainable. First of all, we are your friendly little weekly environment podcast all about people and the planet and why, despite everything being naused, we can have a chuckle about it every now and then. Um, And I am normally joined by Ol, but Ol has still got the pox. Uh, So do not worry, Ol is okay in the scheme of things, but, you know, he is struggling a bit thing and he's not up for babbling this week so i'm doing it on my Todd. and that is because this week i wanted to i thought we really had to talk about something that was in the news actually the thing we were going to talk about was about the daily express going green which is a thing upon which we've got opinions but i need all sorts of those opinions we'll do that whenever he's back right but there's another thing that's been in the news and i had the opportunity to talk to someone about it now that thing is about fish
0: Today's fish is trout a la creme. Enjoy your meal.
1: You may have seen in the news that a thing called, play the sexy music, Dave, bottom trawling, is to be made potentially illegal in bits of the sea. Bits of the sea called marine protected areas, which you would have thought... Were protected, and upon which you would have thought you were not able to bottom trawl in the first place, but apparently you could. Now, this was being greeted as good news by people what care about the sea, but it opened up all sorts of questions for me about like, well, how come this thing, which if you look into it a bit, is horrible and is done everywhere and is about ripping up the seabed in a way that, like, if you drove a bulldozer across a field, it would have that kind of impact. How come that was allowed in the first place? What is it? How come it's allowed in general? Like, should we be able to do that kind of thing? Um, and what's going on here? Are these marine protected areas worth their salt? And what should, what is the state of the seas and the fish in them and the fishing industry after Brexit? So we're going to have a chat with my friend and one-time work chum, Chris Williams, who is a fisher. He goes fishing sometimes. Um, he's also an economist and he knows all about the economics of fisheries and fishing and an ecologist. So he knows about all this stuff. He works for the New Economics Foundation and I asked him to explain all. All about bottom trawling and other types of fishing and what is good and what is bad and if you are someone who wants to eat a bit of fish that don't knacker the sea, what should you do about it? So we had a chat and this is that chat. So before any of that, just the usual disclaimer: I do work for environmental charities, as does Ol, as does Chris. But these are very much our own views. So if you've got any beef with anything that you say, take it up with me, uh, or Chris, or Ol. In fact, take it up with Ol. He deserves it. He can deal with it. He's just loafing about. Uh, but not with anyone for whom we work. Yes, good. So yeah, I'm a militant vegan, as you know, but that's not the reason I don't really fish. Well, I mean, it's clearly a reason, but uh, I never really got it. I never get why some people love to fish. What is it that's so brilliant about fishing? So
0: yeah, that's a very, very good question. It's one I get asked quite often. Um, by by I the think, fish, presumably. By the fish. they had why the hell are you doing <laughs> this to me? Why are you dragging me around by my mouth? Yeah. Um, it's it's a really good question. And I mean for me personally, it's the I'm motivated by uh the same reason that I grow vegetables and the same reason that I would rather eat a, a rabbit or a deer that had been sort of hunted locally than to buy industrial meat. Is I I'm just interested in where food comes from and how it's produced, and I don't think there's a better way of knowing that than growing it or catching it yourself so that's my main motivation I get a very primitive kind of caveman kick out of catching my own dinner um but I mean in the way that you're asking I mean obviously that I know loads of people who are really into fishing as a as a hobby and they seem to do it just to take photos of the fish that I don't really understand it's good to like one um, of them
1: people on the front of Total Carp magazine. Who's, yeah, uh, yeah. Like,
0: you know, a massive carp, and
1: then the next. I, I've often thought, by the way, that being the picture editor of a Total Carp magazine must be hell of a job because all you've got to do really is find like, a picture <laughs> of a carp. Yeah. I hooked yeah. another fish and a good one too. I'm hooked into one. These larger commons were impressive fish, and I was very much enjoying catching them.
0: But yeah, so I mean, I know lots of people that are really into that, and their entire Facebook profile is just pictures of them with fish they take photos of and then put back. For me, I don't really understand that. Um, But it's it's all linked to the same thing. You get a, a, a little bit of adrenaline from, you know, all of a sudden something bites, and then you read it in. What could it be? Oh, wow, you know, it's dinner, or oh, no, it's not. Uh, and it's just it's a really really primitive what, thing well, what
1: is it if it's not
0: well it could be anything an old boot bike tire oh. depends depends on where you're fishing <laughs> i see very
1: good uh okay fish quiz Go uh, on. what what is the best
0: fish the best fish my, my my favorite is the sea bass the i think it's the ultimate predator the bar of silver the holy grail it's also one i've spent a lot of time working on Uh, as a researcher and in a sort of in a policy way so that that's my favorite fish without a doubt i think but i'm also the most amazing fish is the cuttlefish but it's not really a fish it's a cephalopod so like an octopus or a squid
1: what's amazing about it
0: uh it can camouflage itself sort of on a cellular level so unlike a chameleon or something that can camouflage itself through releasing a hormone and slowly changing color a cuttlefish has individual neurons that link to individual pigment cells so you could put like an ace of spades under a cuttlefish and it would produce that pattern on its body instantly instantly it It does do that it does i'll send you a youtube video later
1: it's called adaptive camouflage and it's perfect for hiding from both predators and yeah, yeah,
0: I'm
1: going to eat you little fishies I'm going to eat you little fishies.: yeah. You might be one of the few people who's come on Sustainable, What has done a TED Talk. Yeah, uh, you can find it. Chris Williams, TED Talk, you'll find it. And on there you talk about, like how you kind of got to realize that fishing wasn't just about the fish,
0: right? What's your, yeah, what's your that was in TED talks. They like to get you to present your life as a journey, and you know, remember these three things. So it was, it was all sort of simplifying and condensing what's really, you know, pretty much taken the last twenty years. Uh, and it was really just about this realization that uh, I I got into this kind of work through a love of nature and an obsession with diving and being in and around the sea, and that basically over a period of time working uh, with people uh, around fisheries management issues, marine protected areas, coastal development, tourism, I very quickly sort of reached the conclusion that my conservation focus and thinking about ecology was sort of secondary to, to basically understanding and working with the people who are sort of uh, engaged in activities that, that impact the sea. So it was basically, I guess it started as a biologist, moved through, you know, more sort of social sciences and then ended up at NEF focusing on the economics of it really. So it's just, it was that journey.
1: And like, why does it matter? Because there's a lot of people I think who would say, well, for want of a better word, fishermen, like, you know, kind of, uh, we're fishing too much and we shouldn't really think of this as anything other than an ecological issue. Would you agree with that?
0: Uh, I mean, I, I know that that's a perspective and it's one that's probably shared by a lot of people, But um, my personal view is that what we like to do is tell ourselves simple stories where we lump all things together as either heroes or villains. uh, and We don't tend to think much about the reality of human life and and human society and, and economics, which is that things are really complex and really messy and that they're never quite that simple. And I think fishing is... Uh, an example of an industry that sounds like, you know, everyone's the same doing the same thing. But really, there's a, a huge difference in terms of how people fish, what they fish for, who they fish for, uh, and their sort of attitudes to it. And I mean, I work with people that are like multi-generational, you know, went fishing with their granddad and then their dad and are sort of into it because it's their heritage, it's their identity. And that's something that I've noticed all around the world is that you go, I, I've been very fortunate and privileged to, to, to work in different countries, and I've really found that fishermen from Mozambique to Honduras to the UK have more in common with each other than they do with like a bank manager or someone that works in a supermarket in their, in their own country. Because it is, it's a mindset and a livelihood and, a, and a, uh, just a, you know, a, a way of, I guess, engaging with the world and with society. So um, and it's, uh, it's tough work as well,
1: right? Like yes, yeah, is... it's,
0: it's still the most dangerous job. It's still the most dangerous job in the world without the shadow of a doubt.
1: Wow, I remember uh, I saw Rod Gilbert in one of those work experience programmes when he was a fisherman. And it's like, I don't know if they were just treating him unnecessarily harsh, but they're like, what, 14-hour days they can be and, you know, just obviously stinking of fish and lots of mechanical things and you might fall in the water and you've got to get up in the middle of the night.
0: Say The more fish there are, the messier it's going to be. Equally, the more fish there are, the more we get paid. It's been quite a surprise to learn that you can slog your guts out all day come home with nothing it's not many jobs like
1: that and like i don't know why anyone would do it but is there something like is there still something kind of noble and romantic about it for the people that do it do you think
0: yeah i mean i think it depends you get all sorts right Uh, it doesn't really matter what job it is you'll have some rogues and you'll have some some heroes and champions it's just how 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 human beings are but um yeah it's it's uh, (sighs) a I mean, certainly the idea of being a fisherman and, you know, sort of working in the wild last sort of untamed frontier of the world's oceans is still quite a romantic notion. I think that was something that really got people fired up about Brexit. It was sort of, you know, it's like it really stirred people's passions and became this big issue, although, you know, totally failed to deliver on any count and basically treated the fishermen with total contempt in the end. But I mean, it, it shows... It has that sort of pioneer, sort of frontier thing, isn't it? They're they're your, our last interface with the sort of the wild world, I guess. Um, but yeah, it's certainly a dangerous job. I mean, worldwide, uh, it's it's. I mean, well, I don't even have to say worldwide. I mean, just near here before Christmas, two people uh, died just off of New Haven, and just earlier this month, uh, two people died um, fishing off uh, off Cornwall. So I mean, it is really dangerous. Um, there's it's it's also quite hard to kind of regulate and uh, sort of work with fishermen because of this sort of pioneer mentality. I don't want to say macho, but there is a kind of a really self-reliant, if there's Stroppy problems bastards. with their boat. Yeah, they, they sort of, they, they like to sort out their own problems and do things in a particular way. And I think you've got to be really sort of hard-headed and stubborn and pretty tough to to choose to pursue that as a livelihood. I mean, it's definitely not, you know, I mean, I was having a laugh with one of the fishermen I worked with the other day where we were getting ready to do some job interviews for for a position down uh, where we're working. and I was writing out the questions and I said, you know, we asked him, like, what's a tough thing that you had to had to do in your job? And he was just like, for me, it's like I wake up at 3.30 every day throughout the winter and go out to my boat and go and do that because they, you know, they fish with the tides and stuff. And I just thought, like, the amount of times I've had to wake up at 3.30 in the morning in the winter and roll out of bed, I can count on one hand in my entire life. So before you I could yeah yeah well okay that's different though because you don't you have to leave the house you just have to wake up and like shout at them but i mean to wake up at, at 3 30 jump in your vehicle and then go out you know minus five and go out to sea, and you have to do it or simply you don't earn any money and you can't pay your bills um yeah i mean it's tough it's definitely tough but at the same time you know it's it's also very free you know they don't live or operate or feel part of any kind of bureaucracy or hierarchy or office politics they just that just doesn't exist for them and i think they deliberately seek out that kind of lifestyle because they want to be independent and want to be their own boss and want to you know kind of yeah want to be in nature as well they absolutely love just being outside and just doing practical work that's feeding people and i think that's you know it's it is i think it is an honorable job i mean obviously there's rogues and villains in everything and um, but uh yeah, I think on the whole it's 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 still very closely linked to this very basic human need.
1: I was amazed when I I was looking at the stats before talking to you this always amazes me that there is so the industry is so much smaller than you might think given the kind of perception of it in the national debate and all of the hoo-ha around Brexit and we'll come to that later as you said but it's only like what's fewer than 6,000 registered boats in the UK right of which the vast majority are like little ones right yeah. and but yeah. those little ones hardly catch any of the fish it's basically like the great big boats come along and catch all the fish but i was just kind of amazed at it that it's not that big a deal what, what's that stat that the locks and hinges sector yeah of the, of the economy makes is more generates more gdp than fishing so like how is that always been the case or is the industry just completely now in some sort of terminal decline or what
0: the, the industry's been shrinking, really, since the Second World War for a number of reasons, uh, including that we used to fish extensively in Icelandic waters, uh, and then they declared the same as we said we were going to declare through Brexit, their sort of sovereignty over their exclusive economic zone. So all of our distant water fleet in like Hull and Grimsby, uh, that sort of disappeared pretty much overnight when we couldn't access the the, the cod fishery up in the up in the high north. Um but yeah, we're down to about 12,000 fishermen in the UK now. Um, I mean, people say that the, the EU and the common fisheries policy destroyed it. That's not really true. The de- decline started after World War II, after boats were used in the war effort uh, and then just basically never went back to fishing. Um, but yeah, it's been, a, it's been a sort of slow and steady decline over the, the best part of the last sort of 70, 80 years.
1: I remember like those boats going down the Thames and Nigel Farage saying Brexit would, Brexit would save the fishing industry. For the men and women that have come here today from right across the United Kingdom asking, demanding to be listened to as their communities are destroyed by the common fisheries policy. I think- yeah. um, are they now saved?
0: Well, Is that I now, mean. I think? It- I I think certainly not. I think they're in a worse position than they were before. And I feel they rightfully uh, feel absolutely betrayed and dismayed and sort of quite quite abused by the government that basically all the, the rhetoric and promises just haven't been lived up to at all. I think they've now got the worst of both worlds where they haven't got any of the, you know, massive quota gains that they were told or any of the, you know, sovereignty in terms of the the 12 mile limit which i know was a big deal for for a lot of the smaller what, boats
1: what, what does that mean what were you talking about there the
0: uh, your territorial waters are the are the sort of 12 miles from from shore and um the fishermen in the uk had been told that that was a red line for the uk government that they would definitely ensure that the dutch and french and belgium uh fishing fleet wouldn't be allowed within the within that 12 6 to 12 mile zone um but then UK government capitulated on that, and it's just business as usual, really. And I think that was, for the guys I worked with, that was actually harder to take than the quota gains because they knew fine well that any quota gains would disproportionately go to those who already uh, sort of owned quota.
1: So, like, back in episode 53, we talked mm. to your friend of mine, Griffin Carpenter, about fish.
0: And at that point, he was
1: saying, this is how it's going to go. Like, he was saying then that all of this stuff, all of these Brexit promises are not in practice going to be met. And I think you might have said something like, and if not, you know, it was kind of obvious to all of us, that in practice, Boris Johnson is not going to stand up to the EU and like sell out the British banking and manufacturing industry to save the jobs of 12,000 fishers, right? In practice, it just wasn't that important. But like, is there a bit of you that feels like you want to kind of scream, we told you so at the fishing industry? Or Or are you mostly sort of empathetic about it?
0: Um yeah it's a good question. I mean I the thing is I'm genuinely sad about the outcome because I mean I'm I'm unashamedly uh, voted remain. I feel extremely sad about the whole Brexit project. I feel like it's just a, a massive loss for us as a country and I feel sad about what it's going to mean for my kids' lives, I mean I really feel like their opportunities to to travel and work and fall in love and 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 just experience being being part of something have just been greatly diminished. so the only silver lining for me would be that the people that I'm working with in fishing actually at least benefited and some of the projects we're involved in would actually have a chance to thrive. so I feel sort of doubly done in and just saying I told you so isn't really good enough, and there's a very very fundamental split between the sort of big boats that you're talking about that really are fishing for fin fish, so things like mackerel or cod, um, that basically are quota species because they migrate and move around and need to be managed, you know, for the EU as a whole. And then the shellfish that you tend to get around, you know, the the, the rocky or muddy areas that are sort of closer to the coast, because the truth is we don't really eat that. So all of that, like 80% of that has always gone to Europe um and and uk tastes have never really matched what we were what we were catching um so i guess yeah in answer to your question no i I haven't said i told you so because i know fine well what i was saying four years ago has come true the one thing i would say is that i actually think the uk government have done worse than i thought i mean my, my bar was pretty low but i actually think that they've yeah i actually think that they've what they've done has been abysmal. Possible. And the key is we've got our fish back. They're now British fish, and they're better and happier fish for it. And and some of the sort of political stuff to come out after it, and Rhys-Mogg saying these fish are happier for it because they're British and stuff, I think it's just insulting to like working people <laughs> that go out and do this and are risking their lives. Obviously, they're making a living, you know, they're earning an income. But I just think it's, I just think it shows utter contempt for working people and it it's it's uh, the masks off now basically all the, all the talk about sovereignty and this and that i think the masks off now and it's slipped and it's pretty clear that these people uh, actually have nothing but disdain for, for for fishermen despite trying to elevate them do you
1: ever mention that name in front of me that filthy piece of tow rag
0: fishing was used as this as this way to basically get people behind the idea but when it comes down to it what's happened now is fishermen are in a much worse situation um you know than they were beforehand and and then on top of the sort of loss of trade and export opportunities that are, uh, are going to sink a lot of fishing businesses let's be honest the consequences of brexit are going to be terrible for the fishing industry uh, as we're seeing in the news every day and uh yeah i think no amount of government funding is going to make up for it because the simple reality is you know the advantages of being in the eu were about trade um, and to a large extent, if you catch stuff that other people eat, you need to be able to trade in a in a really easy way with them. And that's just not the case anymore. And we didn't think about that. We pretended nationally that it was all just about access and it was about like, could we patrol our waters? How much of the quota is ours? What are our fish? But the reality is like it's no good to you if, if, if English people don't don't eat what you're catching, then you know, you need a, a plan that takes a few years. To be able to make sure that you've got the demand nationally or from elsewhere and they just simply just don't have that.
1: So this is uh, the reason I really wanted to talk to you this week is because in the news has been a thing that's got a very rude name, which is called bottom trawling, mm-hmm. which is a thing that I know you uh, you know all about, bottom trawling, and also fishing as well. So what I thought I would... What You've been I looking thought forward would, to
0: that, haven't you?
1: I have, yes, I've been looking forward to that joke, yes. Oh, we haven't even started yet. You wait till we get to the uh, demersal trawling. Oh. Uh,
0: have, have you read about su- suction dredging? You want to look at hydro- <laughs> hydraulic suction dredging, mate. That's the that's the way to go. Oh, stop it. Stop it, you beast. The only way to get decent clams
1: is true. <laughs> do you get crabs if you do too much suction crawling? That's the one. Oh, you are awful, but I like you. They'll just give you some types of fishing, and I want you just to quickly say, like, good or bad, right? And I suspect it's more complicated than that. But I'd if rather characterise than
0: that, them than just say good or bad. But well, um...
1: do, do what you like, okay. But, like, at the sort of little tiny end, there is, uh, like, s- hook and line fishing, which is basically sitting on the edge of a boat, or I guess not a boat, and bunging... A fishing rod into the sea and catching mm-hmm. a fish is that's all right, right? That is good. Fish- we could, the world can cope with that.
0: I think I think the world can cope with that. Yeah, I think um, there are. I mean, it's probably the most traditional way of fishing. That's like netting and and rod and line fishing are probably the main ways people have done it. You know, since the since the earliest days that people realised you could catch and eat fish. Um, and the main thing for me is that it's selective. Like you can fish uh, in a way where you sort of know what you're targeting. And you can sort of set a limit, and you're not gonna. Uh, it has no impact on the seabed, um, and it's 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 as far as I'm concerned a pretty good way to go. But as with everything, there's scale. You can also do what is considered hook and line fishing, which is a long line that's ten kilometres long with a hook every you know couple of metres that also catches sharks, dolphins, seabirds, turtles. You know, so 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 there's some kinds of like surface long lining that there are there are big sort of bycatch issues with um but i think like as a, as a fundamental principle you know the the idea of like one line fishing is is the most selective yeah
1: and is that principle but maybe we can shortcut a lot of this hoo-ha because like is the principle of it's not necessarily the type of fishing you are doing but the scale you are doing it at that yeah. is the problem so you mentioned netting right yeah. so like a little net fine a massive net that stretches from here to france not fine
0: yeah Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean scale, yeah, exactly. I think that's a that's a good way of characterizing it. And and thinking about the the kind of impact it has, like on on the species you're catching, on the species you might catch, but you're not planning to, on the seabed. So if you're towing heavy things around the seabed, obviously there's other stuff that lives there that also, you know, provides a function and, and, and has a has a right to exist there too. Uh and then thinking about how much, you know, fuel you use to do it, thinking about you know what time well, of your year nets you're when you're it. done
1: that's you know, it. making sure your nets don't go in the water and that's that.
0: it ghost fishing making sure you don't lose the gear um yeah all of those sort of things matter and then also like when you're fishing if you're if you're catching fish in large numbers the easiest way to do that is when they're spawning because they all come together to reproduce so loads of the biggest fisheries we sort of are involved in as 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 sort of countries are on huge spawning aggregations but obviously the surest way to overfish something is to catch them like while they're in the process of trying to reproduce so I think it's it's important to think about all of those things and, and one thing that recently has struck me quite a lot is there's been so much focus on the sustainability aspects in terms of the environment that people are you know have reached a point now where everything seems to be about you know what was the Collateral for the environment, but I think we really need to focus more on the human dimension. Like, would you want to have something that was caused in a selective, uh, you know, low-carbon way by a slave? I mean, the reality is in the seafood industry globally, there are tens of thousands of people who are working as indentured servants, slaves, or having their sort of uh, their their labour um, taken, their labour exploited to uh, to basically produce seafood and keep profits high for, for for big companies. Is that a problem in the UK as well? Absolutely. Even in Shoreham, uh, just before Christmas, there was the the police actually raided a boat in Shoreham Harbour and uh, evacuated four people. And the newspaper articles describing it referred to them as modern slaves. So, yeah, very much so.
1: So you mentioned uh, dragging things along a bottom of the sea. and This is like yeah. really what I want to talk about. So there's yeah. there's dredging and there's bottom trawling and beam trawling, just like some of this. Because bef- I talked to you about this before, right? I, before I started looking a bit more at fish stuff, I didn't really know anything about the ways fish were caught, right? But when I yeah. learned about what dredging and bottom trawling is... And I thought, imagine doing that on land, to catch, yeah. you know, to, to, to catch something. We wouldn't tolerate it. Like Extinction Rebellion would be chaining themselves to things. There'd be yeah. like people up trees and under tunnels and stuff. But because it's in the water, we let it go. But like, paint a picture for us. What happens when you bottom trawl a thing? What is bottom trawling?
0: So. I mean the, the focus usually in, in fisheries is a split between mobile and static gear. So you have stuff that you either pull around to basically find the fish or stuff that you fix in one place for the fish to come to or like move move through when they're when they're moving with the tides. Um on the whole, static gear, so pots or nets, uh are in one place and for that reason they're you know much more sort of fuel efficient if you want to describe it in that way Um, and their sort of abrasive qualities are all just in one place whereas if you're using mobile gear which are things like trawls and dredges where a trawl is basically a net which is held open by two metal panels or a dredge is like a almost like a metal rake and 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 a beam trawl is like a the, the trawl is held open by a large, heavy metal beam. And all three of those gears are obviously heavy, and they're then towed behind a boat. And what you're doing is you're basically, in the case of um, beam trawling and, and normal demersal trawling, you're basically herding the fish into a net as you, as you tow. And with dredging, you're scraping scallops usually off the seabed because they live in a sort of in muddy habitat and you're, hmm. you're scraping them up into a bag. So obviously- and
1: taking off the seabed with you as you go, presumably.
0: Yeah, so I, I think about it in terms of footprint. If you're just putting something down in one place and then coming back to it, you know, 12 hours later or two days later, the footprint is small, but if you're dragging something behind you for five hours, the footprint is big. And then the scale thing matters again, like you could have a very small scallop dredger that has one dredge either side, or you could have a really big one that has 18 either side. And the footprint of those two is obviously also an order of magnitude different.
1: Giant nets with steel skids are ripping across the seafloor. The nets drag for kilometres, destroying everything in their path. Marie- so if I've got it right, what you're doing when you are bottom trawling and when it come to why this is in the news in a minute is you are dragging a big heavy thing or a rake along the bottom of the uh, bottom of the seabed yeah and the rake is up. the
0: rake is the dredge. Bottom trawling is basically means that you're fishing for a fish that lives on the seabed and you're doing that either with a beam trawl, which is usually for flat fish and that basically scares them up into the net or a demersal trawl, which is. The net goes along the seabed, but you're it's the fish that live near the sea near near the near the seabed, whereas you can also do pelagic trawling, so when you catch mackerel or herring or something you 're doing it in the water column, so that is still mobile fishing that's still trawling, but it's not in contact with the seabed so it's, it's a different- a kind
1: but it's the equivalent of standing in a field on one extreme being in a field like trying to catch a rabbit, and on the other extreme mm. dragging. A bulldozer across a field to try to catch a rabbit. Like yeah, or, or
0: dragging a, dragging dragging a tennis net between two bulldozers to, to catch a rabbit. Yeah, something like that. Yeah.
1: Efficient, but not very good for the rabbit, obviously, but for anything else that isn't the rabbit or that happens to be E.G. under the rabbit at
0: that Correct. Point. Correct. Right. And I always think about this also. I mean, I know that you obviously have a strong interest in, in climate change. And if you if if you removed the uh the sort of fuel subsidy, so if you basically made people pay fuel duty in, in, in fishing and farming. You certainly wouldn't find trawling and dredging being the most efficient because they're obviously way more fossil fuel intense. But at the moment, it's it's the most profitable way to fish because you just basically fill your nets, you know, and then sort through and find the stuff you want and the stuff you don't um, for the for the demersal trawling. You get a real mix of all kinds of stuff and then they just sift sort of sift through it. So
1: how come then this horrible thing has been allowed and is still allowed in things called, I'm quoting, marine protected areas. Now, what's been in the news is that there's a consultation, a proposal, right, that four of the UK's marine protected areas, what are bits of the sea that I am choosing to impute, are protected that four of them you won't be able to bottom trawl in no more only four which is like and there are how many marine protected areas like a lot
0: hundreds yeah
1: hundreds right so in all the other ones you can still do this so how come a you were allowed to do it in the first place and b you still are allowed to do it is what 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 is this word this marine protected
0: bit ah, actually doing is, in practice yes well the thing is it's a sort of catch-all term that covers all kinds of things from no take zones where you can't do anything i couldn't even go there with you know one one hook and a piece of bait and try and catch a fish uh, all the way through to what they call like multiple use mpas which basically you know you can pretty much do anything um, so it really depends. It's a catch-all term that is sort of in of itself a bit meaningless. The two kinds of sites we have in the UK are a mixture of European marine sites, and also which are basically under the Habitats Directive. So those are those are uh, every European country that has you know a sea area has to set them up for habitats that are that are sort of internationally in rare sort of Europe-wide, and then we have marine conservation zones, which was set up under the Marine and Coastal Access Act, which are UK legislation, and you control in both of them that any decision which has been officially reached will have been officially recorded in the minutes by the officials, and any decision which is not recorded in the minutes has not been officially reached, even if one or more members believe they can recollect it. So in this particular case, if the decision had been officially reached, it would have been officially recorded in the minutes by the officials, and it isn't, so it wasn't. Yeah, and so,
1: I mean, I'm, I'm still flabbergasted by the fact that you have this thing called a marine protected area under which you are emphatically not protecting the marine environment if you control it it sounds like a good thing that like four of these things might not be trawlable now but the other thing that was that i noticed was the government was saying ah yeah yeah but that's because of europe and now we're free of europe now we can ban uh bottom trawling in our marine protected areas is that bollocks i have a feeling it's bollocks
0: yeah there's a there's a few aspects to that um i mean the first thing really is that there's marine protected areas that are set up under UK law and we didn't ban bottom trawling in them. And there's marine protected areas that are set up under European law. And we were basically dragged kicking and screaming to revise our approach to even look at uh, whether we should restrict fishing in those in those areas. So I, I don't think the history books would basically say that uh, the UK was sort of pioneering or like pushing hard to uh to 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 ban particular kinds of fishing in these areas in the first place um and i think that the reason for that is sort of politics and just short-term economic cost to industry that obviously the industry doesn't want so they lobby the government and the government then just sort of rolls over um and i think that this, it, it serves a political narrative now to say that it's about Brexit, but the simple reality is yeah. any of this could have happened before, but it would have required cooperation, it would have required uh, compromises and negotiation, and, and basically, guts, presumably, yeah, they just, it's basically, it's a lot less hassle just to not do anything, isn't it? So and this th- is the th- thing,
1: you get, you get this all the time, don't you? It reminds me of the whole green investment bank thing, which was happening when the government was saying, oh, but we, you know, we can't have a proper green investment bank in this country because Europe won't let us. Meanwhile, the Germans had a proper green investment bank. And the difference was the UK never wanted to have a proper green investment bank anyway. And so said Europe's stopping us, right? And it's, it, this whole thing seems like that. The fishing industry before Brexit was being used as like, oh, well, if we have Brexit, we can save the fishing industry. And now we've got. Brexit. It's saying, well, we're doing these things, which we could have done anyway. And the whole thing just strikes me as as bollocks all ends up.
0: Yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, Sweden and Denmark, just to name two examples, have in in the marine protected areas that are designated in the same way have banned trawling in In a couple of them, so I mean it certainly is possible. I think if it's in your own sort of if it's in your own territorial waters, it's easier because you just have to negotiate with your own industry, whereas if it's in shared waters, then you'd have to do it through the common fisheries policy, and it's even more convoluted and complicated. but I mean, if you were determined to do it, it's certainly possible. there's there's no question. I've spoken to fishermen that say, no, it's really good. You've got to dredge the seabed. It's it's like plowing a field. And I say to them, but you don't plow your field three times a week. You know, you wouldn't, nothing would grow. And I think it, it, there's also fishermen I work with that say like, no, this is like my garden. You know, this is where I've been fishing since I fished with my granddad. And they really are stewards. I mean, yeah, sure, they're catching and killing animals. But I mean, that is, it, it's a hunting profession. You've got to be honest about it. I mean, it is, it is animal protein you know, that's coming out of the sea and ending up on people's plates. But you can still, you can have a mindset of being a steward and being responsible and wanting to leave something, or you can have a smash and grab attitude and be a pirate. And I wouldn't break it down just to like the kind of gear or the species you're catching. I think as with anything, you can basically be a bastard about it or not.
1: I got a question for you, which is about like sustainable seafood labels and that kind of thing, like, yeah. e.g., dolphin-friendly tuna, but all the other various mm-hmm. things you can get. So, if our listeners eat fish, which a lot of them I'm sure do, yeah, is it is there anything in it? Should they be bothering with like sustainable seafood, this, that, and the other, or is the whole thing bollocks?
0: It's a really good question, and I get asked that the whole time. I'm like the fish ball. If anybody for a second wants to, uh, I, I can confirm
1: know. Chris is a fish. Ball. <laughs>
0: If anybody wants to is is contemplating eating a place for their dinner, they make sure that they call me and ask me about it. But um I mean the answer
1: he can can give you a right haddock.
0: Yeah. The the answer that I always give is that basically it depends what you want. If yours if you have a, a fixed preference for a particular kind of fish, then you can think about you know sourcing it from somewhere where it's come from a responsible fishery or a sustainable fishery. If what you care about is supporting your local fishermen, then you just got to go with what is seasonally available. If you really care about what's growing on the seabed, then you need to think about what gear it's caught by. If you really care about climate change, you need to think about, was it coming from a huge fuel-intensive industrial boat or flown from halfway across the world? It depends what you want. Most people think about... There's th- the, like the the good fish guide is is a pretty good proxy for all of the environmental issues. I would I would recommend that. And then there's the Marine Stewardship Council, which is good if you're thinking about whether it's come from a industrial fishery that's managed. But I mean, neither of those cater for the fact that you might actually just want to support the fishing port that is closest to you.
1: And they don't do which, anything you know, about all the slavery issues you were talking about or any of that. Well, stuff. exactly,
0: exactly. And that's the key thing. You, the, neither of those things tell you anything about the supply chain and, and what has happened to the human beings engaged in producing your food. And I think that's a problem. I think that's, a, that's a, a big problem, especially with something that is a globally traded commodity. I mean, there's examples of stuff that is caught in UK waters, flown to Thailand, shelled, and then brought back to the UK just because the labour costs are lower. But you've got to ask yourself, if the labour costs are lower, what are the working conditions like? Do you want to support that? And I think that the main problem really is that our only metric for food in general just seems to be whether it's cheap or not in this country. It's, It's very little about the sort of people and planet aspect.
1: Should we be learning to? What have they done? What they're going to rebrand a fish, aren't they? I saw this in the news the other day. Yes, there's the
0: it, Cornish, the, the the Cornish King Spider Crab. Uh, no, the Cornish King Crab instead of a spider crab because people don't like spiders. And the Megrim is going to be rebranded as Cornish Soul, I believe.
1: So we're going to take all of these fish that we don't eat, and because we never heard of them, because we don't eat them, we're in this circle of not eating them. And we're going to call them call, call them things like the uh, Kim and Chloe Kardashian fish, and then people you'll, are just going to eat them. That's the idea, you'll,
0: right? You'll like this one, because this actually happened about 10 years ago as well with the pollock, because the conclusion was reached that it wasn't eaten, not because it wasn't delicious, but because it, it sounded... like bollock. Exactly, because it sounded <laughs> like bollock. So they rebranded <laughs> it as Colin, which I'm not sure is that much better. I see, right. Well, let's hope no one calls this program a load of sloblock.
1: So fishing, yeah what is it really about like fishing policy and we've we've been talking all the way through this episode about what a weird thing it is like economically small totemically massive this kind of semi-mythical thing this romantic hard job where you know it is true that jobs are in the offing but it's also true that there's a lot of ecological damage and we get we don't eat most of the stuff we catch here anyway so what's really going on? Like if you had to sort of nail to the heart of what the current state of play in the fishing is, what would you say?
0: i that's a, a really good question. And I think the two um terms that spring to mind for me are always industrialization and privatization. So as we've scaled up and basically fish more and more and harder and been able to go into you know further and further into international waters and into deeper and deeper waters to basically catch uh, the seafood to meet the global demand, um that's come with a lot of sort of collateral damage so i think the industrialization of you know of an industry if you like well no, that's a stupid thing to say the the industrialization of fishing has moved it away from being something that just happens in coastal communities who then sell what they have caught that day and starts becoming something where things are caught hundreds of tons a day, frozen at sea, frozen into blocks, shipped around, and is just a commodity. And with that comes all of the collateral damage, both human and environmental. And the other one is privatization. As, as this sort of uh, dominant paradigm around how to manage things effectively has been sort of captured by this idea that privatization solves problems. Um, that's been the approach taken with fish quotas and things like that, and that's led to this inequality and the sort of changes at the at the vessel and port level, really, with, with people who have a long heritage and history in fishing just being excluded from it because it's become a sort of market system.
1: And slipper, what they're called slipper skippers. Slipper skippers,
0: thing? yes. That is yeah. the the quota owner who doesn't ever have to go to sea, who can just make his money leasing out or renting out his uh, his quota to people that are actually...
1: It's the economic system. It's bloody neoliberalism coming over here, nicking British fish. It's not. It's not Iceland or France or Holland. It's neoliberalism. It's Donald Trump and Ronald Reagan coming no, over here and nicking our fish.
0: That's what. I, that's what I was actually saying in the during the Brexit referendum. I was saying like thing to the people that I worked with, the fishermen that I worked with, and their complaints. Which I mean, I didn't diminish anything. I agreed with lots of their complaints. It was just that their analysis of who was to blame was wrong. And I think that it's really like, if you hear the complaints now, it's it's politics panders to those two things, especially if you have governments of a particular inclination, because they want that to be the solution. So it's going to be the solution, whether it's your water, whether it's your trains, whether it's your, you know, whether it's your fisheries, it's always going to be privatisation as the answer. And the consequence of that has always been that it concentrates wealth, it concentrates power, it's self-reinforcing, and it doesn't necessarily deliver anything better to the better to the public. And I think um, around the world, yeah, that's one of the strong lessons, is that where where these sort of resources have been privatized, it just it it just takes a livelihood and a and an opportunity away from the people that are really are really doing this and turns it into something that just becomes like a traded commodity for people in suits, really.
1: good that was superb hope you enjoyed that i still think it's an absolutely staggering thing that like you're allowed to wreak that kind of havoc upon the sea because it's the sea and no one notices it i think if you tried to do that in a garden that wasn't your garden people would go bonkers at you so look thanks chris for explaining that all get well soon. Ola's been very touched by all your messages of kindness uh, that have been coming our way. Please keep them coming. Tell him he's a lazy git though and needs to get back to podcasting pronto. Um, but in all seriousness I'll get well, we love you, beat that pox, and come back babbling stronger than ever. Yes? good right uh you can get in touch with us and tell us me what you thought of the show we are on the facebook at sustainababble we are on the twitter at uh what is it the babble wagon or you can email us to hello at fish. thank you as ever to the legendary Dickie moore for the music starts ends and intertwinkles this podcast and to the legendary arthur stovall for the logo what the dawns it and Thank you to all of you for listening. Um, if you like what you hear, you can contribute to the running costs of this podcast. We can keep on doing it. Uh, we are on Patreon. We have a Patreon feed. We are purely listener funded. We are wubbly wubbly wubbly.patreon.comslash sustainer babble. Um, and if you can't do that, don't want to do that, too tight to do that, um, then you can leave us a review on your podcast medium of choice. Right, good, that's it. I'm off. Uh, uh, I'll be back next week, I hope. I very much hope I'll be back next week. I'll rest up. We love you. Speak to you soon. Until then, bye!